This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And hello, hello, hello. Good evening. Before we begin, I want to welcome a new affiliate to the program. Actually, the, uh, the affiliate about to be mentioned will be picking up the show starting July the 8th. And uh, so a big how-do and welcome to KLVT AM 1230. Lubbock, Texas, KLVT AM 1230, Lubbock, Texas, best in the West. So delighted to have them aboard. And uh, I believe uh, we'll add that to the growing list of affiliates. That's number 16. And uh, just keep them coming, keep them coming. Uh, you know, so many different ways to listen to this program. Of course, you can, you in the, in the greater Toronto area, all the way down to the Carolinas, and about 28 U.S. states can listen uh, to our flagship station here at Zuma Radio. AM 740, but you can also listen on podcast. And I get so many emails from uh, people listening on, uh, to the podcast all over the world. And I wanted to shout out to uh, Adam Ashburn, who's listening uh, in Dickens Heath in the United Kingdom. Hi, Richard. Just wanted to say I'm a massive fan and love your podcasts. I leave my iTunes on constantly so that I could get the latest show update here in the UK as soon as physically possible. When, for whatever reason, it doesn't show up, I'm absolutely devastated. Fortunately, this has only happened twice, but it still hurts. Anyway, thanks uh, for the show and all the good stuff you do. A mention on your show would be truly amazing. Regards, Adam Ashburn, Dickens Heath. Well, Adam, thank you so much for your support and for listening. And uh, you can subscribe to the podcast. Uh, There are a number of ways. You can go to AM740 uh, website, which is zoomerradio.ca. You can, I believe you can subscribe right there to the podcast. You can go to iTunes, and uh, it's, it's everywhere, folks. All right. I uh, was in Brantford recently celebrating Mom Sarrett's 88th birthday. My mother is a force of nature. She just, uh, it, it, I mean, I hope... I can only pray that I'm in half as good a shape as, as she is uh, when I'm her age. Uh, very inspiring. So uh, happy birthday again, Mom. And I had the boys there, and they were delighted because they have their brand new tent. They, well, they just got it a couple of months ago for their, for their sixth birthday, and it's a five-man tent, and they're very excited. So we camped out in Grandma's backyard in Brantford. And uh, I'm, I got them a little nervous, though I mentioned that there are a lot of coyotes. Brantford is, is uh, it's 
particularly my mother's neighborhood, coyotes running wild everywhere. In fact, my nephew, who just took up hunting recently, shot and killed a coyote where they have, I believe, uh, they have a bounty on them. And by all accounts, this creature was like 170 pounds. And I'm thinking to myself, I haven't seen the photograph. Someone took a picture. I haven't seen it. But to me, that's not a coyote. That's a wolf. You got wolves running wild around, you know, Brant County. It's like biblical, you know? Unbelievable. Speaking of the Bible, you know, one of my, uh, my favorite books of the Bible that's not in the Bible is the book of Enoch. Uh, many people that are that are uh, that listen to this show, I know, are familiar with that book, the Book of Enoch. It, 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 that's where we we learn about the 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 fallen angels coming to Earth and commingling with the daughters of men and creating this the Nephilim, right? This race of giants and so forth. Uh, and there are the Watchers that are mentioned in the Book of Enoch, and and uh, he's raptured up into heaven and has incredible visions. And he gets this secret knowledge from the fallen angels and. There's a, even in the, included in the book of Enoch is, is a book of astronomy. It's, it's a fascinating, fascinating book. Well, my first guest tonight has actually stumbled upon uh, a, a, um, a high Masonic ritual that incorporates the book of Enoch. And we're going to get into that uh, right away. Robert W. Sullivan IV is a philosopher, historian, antiquarian, jurist, theologian, writer, lawyer, the only child of antique dealers. He was born on October 30th, 1971 in Baltimore, Maryland. Graduated high school from Friends of School of Baltimore, the oldest private school in Baltimore. And uh, he um, spent his entire junior year of college abroad at St. Catherine's College in Oxford University, England, studying European history and philosophy. While in Oxford, he was a member of the Orthodox, or Oxford Union, rather. And uh, he has penned his first book, some 20 years in the writing. It's called... The Royal Arch of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism. Robert W. Sullivan IV, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I am well, Richard. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. You are a 32nd degree Mason, and we're going to discuss what that actually means here in a moment. But there's a lot of confusion. There are, there are different... Uh, rights within Freemasonry. We we ha- and I'd like to take a few moments to discuss what what those different rights are and the differences between them. We have the the Scottish rite. We have the York rite. We have the Blue Lodge. Can you sort that out for us? Yeah, sure. Um, you, you're correct. You have you have these sort of in, in America. You have these basically three. You have the two versions of the higher degrees, and then you have Blue Lodge. Blue Lodge Freemasonry is your first three degrees of Freemasonry. Um, which is what's called the Entered Apprentice Degree, the Fellow Craft Degree, and the Master Mason Degree. You you cannot enter the York Rite or the Scottish Rite without completing those three degrees. Um, it, you, you cannot enter either the Scottish Rite or the York Rite without first becoming a Master Mason. Um, and again, this is what's called the Blue Lodge. Um, and, you know, this is what you would call your local sort of Masonic temple, um, you know, you know, many people belong to this. They do the they do the third degree. A lot of people stop at that degree. It's completely voluntary. If you want to go into the higher degrees, no one forces you to. Um, if you want to, it's there. Um, but in order to go into either the York Rite or the Scottish Rite, you have to be a Blue Lodge Master Mason. That is absolutely 100% required. 
if you do not want to go into the high degrees and you want to stop at the Blue Lodge at the third degree, that is certainly your right. That is your prerogative. There's nothing against that. No one, no one thinks less of you or, or, or indifferent to you if you choose to do that. A lot of Masons choose to go into the um, higher degrees. I chose the Scottish Rite. There's also the York Rite. The primary, the primary difference between the two, um, look, they're, they're both, in, in the United States, they're both born out of something. The high degrees in, in America are both born out of something called the Rite of Perfection. Um, and these are 25 degrees coming out of Paris, France, in the mid-1700s. Um, they, they come into America by a guy named Etienne Morin, who brings them piecemeal into the United States um, via Haiti. And um, it's, these, it's, it's these 25 degrees which ultimately are transformed into the York Rite of DeWitt Clinton and T.S. Webb, what ultimately, ultimately becomes the um, Supreme Council of the World set up in Charleston, South Carolina in 1801, which is, of course, the Scottish Rite, which is, I'm a, like you said, I'm a 32nd of that. It ends at the 33rd degree. It really ends at the 32nd degree, but the 33rd degree is, is unsolicited. For example... I can't follow a petition to join the 33rd. I have to be asked to join. And in order to be asked to join, it's usually indicative of charity work, social standing, i.e. you're a politician or a, a charity worker. Um, uh, alternatively, you, uh, you know, a, a minor celebrity can get offered the 33rd degree. Um, a politician, someone who does um, you know, ph philanthropy in the community, these are usually who get invited into the 33rd degree. So 33rd degree is honorary. So, it's correct. But, it's an honorary degree. That's absolutely right. So from the 25 degrees, how do we get to 32? They, they, they piecemeal them up, um, and they split them up, and some degrees overlap. They cut a couple of them in half. For example, in the, um, in, in, in the original high-degree system, um, as it comes in, there's a degree called the Mark Master Mason. Um, and this, this gets basically turned into degrees 1 through 13 in the Scottish Rite, or, or would be degrees 4 through 13, basically. Degrees 1 through 3 are, of course, the Blue Lodge. But that one degree gets split up into, um, you know, like eight separate degrees. Um, in the York Rite, it's a little different because they don't have as many degrees, but the main primary difference between the York Rite and the Scottish Rite, and the York Rite has something that um, is really unique to Freemasonry, and it distinguishes itself from both Blue Lodge and the Scottish Rite, and that is, and I'll just backtrack for a minute, in Blue Lodge Freemasonry, it, it's deism. It, it, it's the requirement to join is you have to believe in a supreme being, is, is the word that's used, or the great architect. So if you're a Christian, you can join. If you're Jewish, you can join. You know, a Muslim can join, Hindu, Buddhist. Really, it, it's to exclude an atheist. An atheist is really who's supposed to be kept out. Scottish Rite is the same sort of same sort of the, the, you know philosophy. It's more deistic than it is Christian or Jewish, you know, or Islam. It's it's a deistic sort of um, body. In York Rite, the York Rite ceremony ends with a degree called the Knights Templar, um, or the Knights, Tem you know, the the Temple of the you know the Temple of the you know the Knights Templar. Or the I'm, I'm skipping here. It's the Knights Templar uh, ceremonial, and in order to join that in the York Rite, that requires a Christian confession. So if you are doing York Rite and you're a, a, uh, a Jewish person or a Muslim or a Hindu, and you come to Knights Templar, you're probably not going to be able to join it because it requires that you have to pledge your allegiance to Jesus Christ. So in that aspect, Knights Templary 
separates itself from the other um, systems of Freemasonry. It, it depends on where you are. It's almost a geographical thing. Some Masons will go through the York Rite and just, you know, if, if they're Jewish or they're Muslim or they're deistic, they will stop at night at the Knight Templar degree. They won't enter it. To me, that's sort of almost like a Masonic sacrilege. I, I sort of believe that if you're going to join a Masonic body, you should complete the, the, the complete rituals. You, t- you should take all the degrees. Some people have no problem with just stopping um, you know, right before they get to the Knights Templar if they're not Christian. Um, but in Scottish Rite, you, of course, can go right through the 32nd. No one makes you, there's no p- pledge to be, you know, a Hebrew or a right, Christian. Right. You, know, you know, you just go, go right on through. Robert Sullivan is here. The book is The Royal Arch of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism. Robert is a 32nd degree a Mason. You're disabusing me of, of, of a lot of, I guess, maybe misconceptions that I've had. I mean, I, I, I'm speaking to you as someone who sat down in a, a, uh, a secret location with Ed Decker, uh, of course, the author of The Dark Side of Freemasonry, who, who uh, laid out his argument that, uh, that, that Freemasonry is, is uh, demonic, satanic, and we've all heard those, those. But to hear you say that you, that you have to swear an allegiance to Jesus Christ, uh, you know, and the Knights Templar, of course, we're familiar with, with the, temp- the Knights Templar guarding the, the roads to the Holy Land uh, for, for Christians in Europe. Uh, so let me let me talk here just for a couple of minutes before we we take a time out, and that is the origin of Freemasonry. You mentioned seventeen hundreds, uh, the seventeen hundreds coming out of Paris or, or France. Uh, where does Freemasonry begin? Is it the ancient stone cutters from uh, from Egypt uh, and those that later went on to build uh, the, you know the the first temple uh, uh, does it begin in the 14th century uh, does it begin in the 18th century when okay well the the answer to that question is really depends who you ask um, when we talk about the thing in the mid 1700s coming out of France that's really with the higher degrees blue lodge freemasonry and what we were just talking about is really, I mean, as it exists today, um, comes together in 1717 on um, June 24th, um, which, you know, is when the Grand Lodge of England is created. Um, that's when, you know, that's really when most people delineate the starting point for modern-day Freemasonry. Now, when you get into the esoteric and mystical side of it, you know, I mean, th- this is where you get into sort of the muddy conspiratorial waters. You know, where is its true origins? And it depends on really who you want to talk to. I mean, some suggest it comes out of these medieval Germanic guilds, um, building the medieval Gothic cathedrals um, during the Middle Ages. Some suggest that the, these stone builders got their knowledge in turn from the Knights Templar, who, who returned to Europe with these Kabbalistic mathematical secrets that they discovered in the Holy Land. That's really the origins of it. Um, there are people who, you know, and, and, and again, you know, these Germanic European stone cutters, these, these cathedral builders are supposed to possess, you know, biblical secrets of stone masonry that goes all the way back to the construction of the Tower of Babel. Um, you know, the, the actual really quote-unquote, you know, and then you get into sort of also mystical concepts, you know, is Freemasonry incorporating, you know, the Egyptian mysteries, um, you know, and, you know, you know, concepts of the dying and resurrected sun. Um, you also get into elements of what's called Rosicrucianism, which is sort of a proto-Masonic secret society dealing with New Age enlightenment um, and, you know, secrets. Um, it begins as a modern order as it is today in 1717, but I would definitely suggest that 
that modern Freemasonry definitely incorporates all elements of what I just said. Um, there are elements of Rosicrucianism in it. There are elements of the Egyptian mysteries in it that can clearly be seen in the third degree of the Blue Lodge. Um, when you get into actual operative masonry, which is stone masonry, and again, you know, this is, has to do with what, you know, what's called the hermetic maxim of as, as above, so below, where you get into the concepts of the alignments of buildings to certain constellations, planets. Um, you know, this is now becoming more and more widely accepted with places like the District of Columbia. I'm here in Baltimore, Maryland, and you'll see it in downtown here um, if you've got the eye for it. And um, The all-seeing eye for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really a symbolic language almost. Robert, um, let, me, and, uh, let me just jump in here. Go we'll, ahead. Sure, uh, we'll, sure. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. We'll, uh, we'll delve further into the, uh, the Royal Arch of Enoch with Robert Sullivan. We'll find out, of course, a million-dollar question. Many people listening want to know, you know, did the Bavarian Illuminists uh, infiltrate uh, the, the Freemasons? Do they still exist? What do the Jesuits have to do with the Freemasons? All that and more with Robert Sullivan right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, Do you want to learn how to make a ton of money flipping houses right here in Toronto in the Golden Horseshoe? If so, we have an amazing opportunity for you. We're looking for a small group of motivated individuals to join our real estate investing team. You'll learn our simple two-step system for flipping homes right here in the local area. Our team is led by Than Merrill, the star of A&E's hit TV show Flip This House. Than is looking for a handful of people in the Toronto and the Golden Horseshoe area who want to learn how to consistently make a lot of money per deal in your spare time without using any of your own money. Toronto and the Golden Horseshoe are the perfect markets for our system. And next week, we're holding a free two-hour educational workshop where you can learn how to make a lot of money flipping homes in your spare time. Interested candidates can get two free tickets to the workshop by calling 1-800-748-4210. Seating is extremely limited, so call right now to get your two free tickets at 1-800-748-4210. That's 1-800-748-4210. That was a whole note from Corcovado, or Quiet Nights, by Antonio Carlos Jobim. That was flutist Bill McBurney with a whole note for... The Whole Note, thewholenote.com, providing a rich, comprehensive picture of the live musical scene in Southern Ontario, plus the latest news and CD reviews. So much more than who, what, and where. Thewholenote.com. George Norrie here reminding you that I'm coming back to Toronto for another live stage show. Join me Saturday, June 29th at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre as I welcome special guests David Hatcher Childress, Richard Dolan, and live via Skype, none other than Alex Jones. Tickets are available at conspiracyculture.com or by calling 416-916-1696. Complete information available at George Norrie Live. 
Com. It takes a great artist or a very good year for a song to make it here. It's the Happy Gang Top 10 at 10 at AM 740. Listen weekday mornings at 10. Brought to you by Casino Rama. personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers, 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Robert Sullivan, the fourth, no less, the Royal Arch of Enoch, the impact of Masonic ritual, philosophy, and symbolism. Let's go back to uh, the, uh, the the 1700s uh, in Europe, and uh, we've oft heard it said that the uh, that a, a Bavarian, uh, a member of the Bavarian Illuminati, Adam, uh, Adam Weishaupt, uh, infiltrated Freemasonry. What is the significance of that? I guess we should talk just for a few moments about who the Illuminists were and and why it's significant that Adam Adam Weishaupt apparently did what he did. The, the Illuminati comes on the scene in 1776. Um, their birth date is May the 1st, um, which is an interesting date to select. That's, of course, Beltane, which is sort of um, the springtime version of Halloween. Um, the Illuminati is this sort of really extreme form of militant deistic Freemasonry. Um, I suggest in the book, and I kind of go against what a lot of people say about the Illuminati, um, but in the book, I suggest that the Illuminati was the Jesuits under another name. Um, and this goes back to the actual creation of the Rites of Perfection um, in Paris, France, which I suggest in the book, well, I don't suggest it, I state it, was really a counter-reformation um, agenda of the Jesuits to lure Protestants back to the church in Rome. Um, and it was also a vehicle to restore the Stuart pretenders back to the throne of England. Um, all Let evidence, just, let's all, just talk about that for a second. How okay. how was uh, this designed? How did the Jesuits at, uh, intend to lure Protestants back into the Catholic Church? Sure. Um, at the Council of Trent, after the Reformation of Martin Luther occurs, um, the Jesuits lead this um, Council of Trent, which is what begins what's called the Counter-Reformation, where the Jesuits basically become Europe's version of the CIA, where they use any means necessary, subterfuge, um, you know, espionage. Sure, um, they, self- tried to, they tried to assassinate Elizabeth I, did they They not? tried to assassinate Elizabeth I. They um, have taken over the Spanish monarchy, for lack of a better word. And in 1717, when what comes on the scene, you have this Protestant deistic, um, you, know, you know, secret society club called the Freemasons, which is very popular. Well, how can we combat this? Well, let's create these higher degrees of Freemasonry. We know that the Blue Lodge only consists of three degrees. Let's create these alternative new degrees of Freemasonry, which sort of offset these other degrees. Um, and this, you know, you know when, when you get into it, the guy, this is where you're getting into really murky waters, 
when you have when you have the creation of the Blue Lodge in 1717, a Presbyterian English minister writes this thing called the Constitutions of the Freemasons, where he just talks about Blue Lodge Freemasonry, and he dates it all the way back to you know biblical times. In the mid 1730s, you have a um, a French Roman Catholic Englishman living in Paris who is actually the tutor of Charles Edward Stuart, um, who is better known in history as Bonnie Prince Charlie. Uh, his name is Andrew Michael de Chevalier Ramsay, and he issues this famous oration in 1732 where he says, no, you guys have got it all wrong. He said, Freemasonry isn't Protestant. He said, Freemasonry is an invention of the Knights Templar, who are these Roman Catholic warrior knights. Um, and it seems that based on this oration, the, the Jesuits um, pick up on this theme, and at this Jesuit college, it's called the College of Claremont, I mean, it's right there in the heart of Paris, um, seem to be creating these high-degree um, rites and rituals, which they want to sort of take over in England, it never does. Um, and it seems to be the sort of um, device to lure English to reaccept the Stuart pretenders back to the throne of England, who of course were Catholic, at least James II was. Um, when, when high degree Freemasonry and the right of perfection, it becomes sort of popular in Ireland and um, places like Wales, but it never catches on in London because, you know, the English are very wary of the French, and certainly after, you know, the Henrican settlement, they don't like the Jesuits anyway. Um, but it's, it's, it's definitely, you know, and if, you, if you've ever gone through, you know, it's these 25 rights um, that ultimately become the, you know, Scottish right and the York right. And again, you're, you know, you're talking about themes that deal with Roman Catholicism, themes of papal monarchy, royalty. I mean, it's the royal arch degree. I mean, it's the royal secret degree. Right, and a number of, a number of uh, monarchs, I believe Queen Victoria, had a, uh, uh, what was her, um, she had kind of a, a Masonic uh, type uh, title as well, didn't she? Well, a lot, of, a lot of monarchs in the, a lot of monarchs in Europe always called themselves um, the protector or the protectress of the craft. Um, I believe Queen Victoria called herself the protectress of the craft. Um, Napoleon the first called him, himself the protector of the you know craft. It's debatable. It's still debatable whether Napoleon the first was a Mason. That's a sort of fifty-fifty split on that. Um, people go either way with it. A lot of the generals were, but um, when you get into what, what I was setting up was when you get into the Illuminati. Um, the, the, the Society of Jesus is, is suppressed um, in the early 1700s um, because by that point in time they were sort of perceived as these political meddlers, these political intriguists. Um, you have a lot of um, Jesuit writers talking about the Egyptian mysteries. The Christianity was just the Egyptian mysteries under another name. Sure, they were kind of a they were kind of a loose cannon. I mean, the the, the 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 papacy tried to distance themselves, and some perhaps it's it's been argued certain popes that tried to shut down the Society of Jesus paid with it with their lives. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the Jesuits by that point in time had become their own, you know, sort of secret society. That's really the best way to describe it. Um, Pope Clement the Fourteenth suppresses them in the early 1700s, and it's right after that that you have the emergence of the Illuminati, which seems to be the sort of proto-Jesuit Masonic order. Um, and you know, if you look at the aims of the Illuminati, I mean, it's very anti-Rome, but it, you know, it's, it's almost like the Jesuits are just trying to get back at the papacy um, for shutting them down, and it seems to have worked because um, you know the Illuminati just seems to be the sort of vehicle that carries and transports the Jesuits underground through the French Revolution, through the wars of Napoleon, um, and then you know after the defeat of the Napoleon, you know the defeat of Napoleon, the conclusion of the Napoleonic Wars, boom, you have the restoration of the Papal States, 
um, the restoration of the Jesuits and the restoration of the Inquisition. It's all rather so, ironic, uh, Robert, that uh, particularly, and we'll probably get into this, time permitting, that sure. when Freemasonry is transplanted to the United States and, of course, embraced uh, by by uh, George Washington and, and many of the founders, it's ironic, you know, here the, 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 the raison d'etre of the United States was to, uh, to uh, in, you know, institute this egalitarian uh, uh, republic, um, and, and yet the organization, uh, the fraternity that they so uh, firmly embraced was very monarchical. It is, but it's, it's, it's a contradiction between Blue Lodge and the high degrees. A lot of the, found, the, blue, the, the high degrees, the, the, the guys who are the founding fathers, these are your Franklin, your Washington, your Lafayette, guys like that. Um, these, you know, well, not Lafayette's one of Washington, or Henry Knox is probably a better example. A lot of, you know, in Hamilton. Um, these guys are trying, you know, these guys are your Blue Lodge Masons, which is, you know, Blue Lodge is very egalitarian, you know, religious freedom, um, freedom of choice. You know, we're not going to dictate to a person how to live their lives. You know, whatever your own religious belief is yours, we're not going to tell you otherwise. It's not really until, um, after, you know, until the late 1700s, early 1800s that you really have the advent of the high degrees in America. All right, Robert Sullivan is with us, and the book is The Royal Arch of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism. And uh, you know, the premise of the book is that you have uh, uncovered this, uh, this high ritual uh, that is heavily influenced uh, by the, the Book of Enoch, which of course is uh, one of the apocryphal uh, books, I guess, of the Bible. It's not included in the Bible, though it's often referenced uh, by biblical scholars. Of course, we're familiar with uh, you know the tales of the the Nephilim and so forth, and fallen angels, and and uh, Enoch, who uh, apparently was raptured. Well, let's take a few moments before we get into uh, what this ritual, the Royal Arch of Enoch, uh, was. We we need to, to set the table here and talk about the Book of Enoch. Just just walk us through that. Give us a thumbnail. A portrait of the Book of Enoch, if you could. Sure. Um, what has to be understood is the Book of Enoch is off the history pages from around the second um, second century Common Era, told basically about 1821, when it's finally translated into English um, at Oxford University. Basically, from that entire time frame, the Book of Enoch is off the history pages. In a nutshell, I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as possible. The book of Enoch, Enoch is one of two people in the Bible to never die a physical death. The prophet Elijah is the other one. The book of Enoch, or one Enoch, as it's sometimes commonly called also. There's also a two Enoch and a three Enoch, but we won't have time for those. Um, but one Enoch details, in, in the Bible it said that Enoch is taken up into heaven by God. And what one Enoch documents is, what does Enoch entering heaven as a human being in corporeal form see? And he sees some sort of strange stuff that kind of goes against what you would call sort of orthodoxy. Um, he gets up there and he's told... Um, or it's highly suggested to him, at least, that the tree of life that, he, that Eve bit from is Hebrew Kabbalah, um, that the apple is one of the sephirot. Um, he is explained that the, the tree of life in Hebrew Kabbalah is the emanation of the name of God. Um, he meets the archangels, people like Michael and Gabriel, and he also interacts sort of almost as a lawyer-type character. I don't really like to use that term, but it's just for the sake of our, our discussion. Almost like an intermediary is probably a better word for this group of fallen angels known as the Nephilim. 
Um, and the, these angels have incurred the wrath of God because they have come down to earth and have had sexual relations with the earth women. Um, and, um, or, and they have created the race. The, the, the earth women have gotten pregnant and created this race of giants called the Nephilim. That's right. Yeah. Right. That's right. The, um, the angels are often called, the fallen angels are called the watchers. Um, and sometimes the archangels are actually, um, referred to as the watchers because they watch the watchers. But that's sort of, um, you know, that's, we're parsing out words there. But he interacts with this group of fallen angels and it's through this group that he learns these sort of, you know, occult, you know, esoteric doctrines, um, mathematics, you know, you know, we're, we're saying this now because it's common knowledge, but back in the day, these were sort of, you know, you know, Kabbalistic secrets, um, knowledge about astrology, astronomy, uh, the movements of the moon, the movements of the sun, mathematics, um, secrets about writing, secrets about language, and what, what the Book of Enoch basically, you know, documents is this experience. Um, and what Masonic lore teaches, and come, this is coming out of these things called the ancient manuscripts or the Gothic manuscripts, is it's sort of when Enoch comes back down to earth, he catches wind that the flood of Noah is coming, and it's going to eradicate mankind, and it's going to eradicate this knowledge that Enoch has brought down from these fallen angels. No, and, and of course Noah, I believe, is, uh, I'm trying to remember my genealogy here. It's either his here. grandson or his great-grandson. Right, yeah, it's, yes. It's, it's one of those two. Right. It's either his great-grandson or his grandson. It's escaping me. But um, Enoch, Enoch, basically, in an effort to preserve this knowledge that he's learned from these fallen angels, builds this thing called the Vault of Enoch. Um, and what he does is he takes the mathematical knowledge that he's learned from these angels or these fallen angels and inscribes it on one pillar. Then he takes the seven liberal arts, inscribes that on the other pillar. Then he takes the secret name of God and puts that on this golden triangle in between them and seals it in this um, underground vault under nine archways to survive the flood of Noah. What the Masonic ritual implies, this higher degree, is it has to do with the recovery of this vault of Enoch and this is being developed in the 1700s in France, which is incorporating clearly elements of the Book of Enoch, which shouldn't be happening because the Book of Enoch is off the history pages in Europe, like I said, to around 1821. Um, it, it, copies of the book are discovered by um, a Freemason named James Bruce while traveling in Ethiopia. And in the early 1770s, he comes back to Europe with them but they're just deposited in the basement of the Bodleian Library at Oxford, where they're not even translated into uh, English until 1821. And what my book documents is this historical anomaly that this Masonic rite or this Masonic ritual called the Royal Arch of Enoch, I mean, it's actually named after him, um, is incorporating elements clearly from the Book of Enoch, which should not be happening. Um, so what I suggest in the book is clearly there was either there was either a copy of this thing already floating around Europe, um, which someone saw, um, and this character who most likely saw this is this person I mentioned earlier named the Chevalier Ramsay, or alternatively, someone saw a very detailed outline of the Book of Enoch, um, which is possible also. So you know, well, where did Raleigh get this knowledge from? So that there could be this sort of lost tradition. 
um, or you know perhaps a, you know this secret book of Enoch or a secret library somewhere out there. That's sort of what I kind of conclude at. Fascinating. All right, we'll take a time out. Come back, Robert Sullivan the Fourth, and the Royal Arch of Enoch: The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism. Right here on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at Vision TV brings you an unforgettable story of motherhood. The nurse is here and she's asking really embarrassing questions. And the bravery of extraordinary women in 1950s London. Call The Midwife, a new British dramatic series that's both honest and powerful, based on the memoirs of real-life midwife Jennifer Wirth. Fans of Downton Abbey are gaga for Call the Midwife. And Vision TV delivers Season 1. Catch a new episode Wednesday night at 9 on Vision TV. Hi, I'm Jackie Maxwell, Artistic Director of the Shaw Festival. This year at the Shaw, don't miss Somerset Mom's glittering comedy, Our Betters. Rich American women, English men with titles, everyone's terribly smart and gorgeous. It's like Downton Abbey on stage. The critics are raving about Our Betters, a must-see production. Buy your tickets today. The Shaw Festival, great theatre in the heart of Niagara wine country. Go to shawfest.com. Welcome to Roger's Tech Talk. I'm looking for a great deal, Roger. Uh-huh. And I'm a real penny pincher. Oh, well, if you switch to Roger's faster internet, superior TV, or home phone by June 17th, you'll get a credit of up to $150. Wow. Plus, get TV and internet installed within 24 hours. That is a great deal. Must be hard to be a penny pincher now that they've stopped making them. Thanks for your two cents, Raj. Okay. Switch and get a credit of up to $150. Go to rogers.com slash deal for details. For the first time ever, Chevrolet is offering 0% financing for 84 months on every vehicle in the 2013 lineup. It's the big 0% sale, and the savings are huge. Looking for a new 2013 Silverado Heavy Duty? 0% for 84 months. Traverse, Trax, Volt, Corvette? Get 0% financing for 84 months on every 2013 Chevrolet. But this big sale is for a short time only. Offers available June 12th to 22nd. OAC, see your Chevrolet dealer, or visit OntarioChevroletDealers.com for details. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. 
Robert Sullivan is with us. The Royal Arch of Enoch, the impact of Masonic ritual, philosophy, and symbolism. Uh, so the the idea here of this ritual is sort of reclaiming this lost knowledge that uh, Enoch supposedly uh, squirreled away prior to the flood. This was knowledge uh, that he gained from uh, the fallen angels. Uh, so this would suggest then uh, that reclaiming this knowledge would 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 go against God's will, would it not? And and then and then we get into this whole discussion about again whether the pursuits of Freemasonry are in fact antithetical to Christianity. Well, it's an interesting it's an interesting question because what what you what you have just suggested is really what what is the crux of anti Masonry in in America um, is this concept of you know that the Masons have sort of thwarted the will of God. By preserving this, you know, sort of lost, you know, you know, almost, you know, you know, wisdom coming from these fallen angels, where where you have, you know, and I guess it's almost sort of an individual subjective view on this, um, where where there is a difference in in this, and you know, you know, where where there's a split in this, where, you know, where you get into sort of strict orthodoxy is, in in the Bible, in the Old Testament, I mean, I, you know, and I don't deny this. Um, the, the the knowledge that that Enoch learned is definitely considered you know unholy and evil. That being said, in the book of Enoch, it's the opposite. In the book of Enoch, despite the fact that the knowledge is coming from the fallen angels, God approves it. Um, you know you know God has no problem with Enoch learning this material. I mean, and, and the knowledge. That Enoch, you know, it's it's it, it's a split. I mean, it's they completely contradict each other. I mean, there's no question about it. In the Bible, the knowledge is perceived as unholy and evil, whereas in the Book of Enoch, the knowledge that Enoch squirrels away is divine and godly. Um, you know, it, it depends on your flavor, if you will. If you want to look at it one way, then you could say, yeah, well, then the Masons are sort of this, you know, secret cabal, you know, protecting the squirreled away knowledge and it's evil. But or you can look at it the other way and say, well, you know, if you take the Book of Enoch, if you want it, well, yeah, well, the knowledge was godly and God approved it and had no problem with it. So, but you, you are correct. Um, you know, and, and where you're getting into more concepts within this country, you know, of the AC, anti-Masonry flavor of it is, is the restoration of this knowledge, um, and this goes to directly to the heart of the Royal Arch degree, and this is what I mentioned earlier in the show, is, is in order to restore this knowledge um, inscribed on these two pillars, it's the recovery of what is the name of God, which is squirrel, or it's not squirrel, which is placed in between them. It's what's called the tetragrammaton in masonry. It's, the, it's another way of saying the name of God. And within the Royal Arch ritual, um, th- that name is is controversial because you know you know again this gets to the crux of anti masonry is you know it's basically a combination I'm, I'm not allowed to say it but I'll, I'll just get into the, the description of it it's a combination of um, either Yahweh or Jehovah and the other two syllables are these um, pagan sun gods um, it's not a it's it's not a creature or an entity that any mason truly worships. It's just a, a substitute, you know, they had to come up with a name, so that's what they went with. 
Um, I know that's probably not an alert answer, an answer people you know may not want to hear, but it's really the truth of it. But it, it, it you know, you know, the, the 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 stem of it is well, since you're not using Jesus Christ, this is you know some sort of you know pagan, you know unholy, you know secret society. No, they're they're just combining three names, and you know, again, if a person decides that's not right, well, that's up to that person. I can't dictate to them what what to think or feel. But it, it definitely is part of um, you know anti masonry. But you know, again. Just going back to the question, you know, the, the the information stored on the knowledge or on the pillars, excuse me, is you know considered divine in the Book of Enoch, but in the Bible, it's considered unholy. Right. I mean, I, as an Orthodox Christian, I, I I certainly can't see anything ungodly about you know the Pythagorean theory or or algebra or the liberal arts. I mean, right. <laughs> God right. knows there are some you know some great seminaries around uh, North America that offer a good liberal arts degree. That's yeah. That's absolutely right. I mean the. Um, the 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 um, in in the in the book in in the sonic lore in in the royal arch ritual they discovered the vault of Enoch and it's the recovery of the tetragrammaton and what, why this is so important within masonry and, and and what my book presents is it's really the symbolism and the philosophy coming out of this degree that really is is what's defining America more such than the blue lodges because it's the recovery of this lost name of God, this, this tetragrammaton. Well, your listeners may be saying, well, what's so important about that? Well, what's, what's really important about it is this is the entire point of Blue Lodge Freemasonry. Let me just, which, uh, let's leave that as a cliffhanger. We'll take a time out and we'll come back okay, and sure, we'll find sure, out no problem. why this is so important and, uh, and how uh, it, it helped shape uh, America. Back with more of my conversation with Robert W. Sullivan IV, the Royal Arch of Enoch, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Earnings vary based on your effort. Do you want to learn how to make a ton of money flipping houses right here in Toronto in the Golden Horseshoe? If so, we have an amazing opportunity for you. We're looking for a small group of motivated individuals to join our real estate investing team. You'll learn our simple two-step system for flipping homes right here in the local area. Our team is led by Than Merrill, the star of A&E's hit TV show Flip This House. Than is looking for a handful of people in the Toronto and the Golden Horseshoe area who want to learn how to consistently make a lot of money per deal in your spare time without using any of your own money. Toronto and the Golden Horseshoe are the perfect markets for our system. And next week, we're holding a free two-hour educational workshop where you can learn how to make a lot of money flipping homes in your spare time. Interested candidates can get two free tickets to the workshop by calling 1-800-748-4210. Seating is extremely limited, so call right now to get your two free tickets at 1-800-748-4210. That's 1-800-748-4210. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Robert Sullivan stays with us as we discuss uh, this high ritual 
uh, influenced by the Book of Enoch, the Royal Arch of Enoch, the impact of Masonic ritual, philosophy, and symbolism. And before we proceed, Robert, uh, just let folks know how they can get a hold of the book. Sure, absolutely. Um, my webpage is www.robertwsullivan, and that's I-V, because my name's the fourth, that's the letter I and the letter V, dot com. It's all lowercase, it's all connected. That's www.robertwsullivaniv.com. There are links from that page um, in the upper right to buy the book. It's available for my publisher. It's on Kindle. It's on Nook. You can buy it in um, App- Apple's iBookstore. There are links to that all on my webpage. Um, you can buy it from my publisher. Alternatively, it's on Amazon.com. Um, it's on Kindle. It's on Barnes & Noble's Nook. You can purchase the oversized paperback. It's a little more expensive, but if a person wants that too, um, that that's available. So yeah, um, if you go to robertwsullivaniv.com, um, and there's a link there on the upper right corner. It says buy the book. Click on that, and there are links that will take you anywhere you want to go. And if you go to the page, there's also my Twitter feed, Facebook like pages. A person could check out. And I just recently launched a YouTube channel. Um, you can go to the media section for that and um, watch some videos of me talking about the book. Um, that's that's all there, and it's totally free. Anyone can go there anytime. All right. So let's uh, spend some time discussing uh, the significance of this. Okay, so we have this ritual. Uh, that is based on or influenced by the Book of Enoch, and uh, the the premise here is the recovery of this sort of lost arcane knowledge that was supposedly given to Enoch by uh, the fallen angels. Uh, So what's the significance of that? Sure, well, the the significance is twofold. Um, In the Masonic Masonic lore, I'm just going to go over this quickly because I'm going to go back to the other section, which is probably a little bit more important. In, in, in the high degree, it's the recovery of this lost name, which we've talked about. Is you know, if you you know, in the Masonic legend, when you correctly pronounce it, you can restore the knowledge on these on these two pillars. In the Masonic legend, this is even before the Masons discover the vault. Um, in the ritual, the vault had already been penetrated by these two characters. Um, one is named Hermes Trismegistus, who is sort of this um, Greco-Roman Egyptian god of wisdom who correctly um, pronounces the name and restores the seven liberal arts. The other character is this Greek mathematician named Pythagoras who has a Eureka moment in the vault, which Eureka, I found that the it being the lost name, pronounces it correctly and restores mathematics to the world. Um, the reason it's important, and this goes back to what we, were, we, we left off on before the, before the break, is the, the reason why this degree is so important and the philosophies associated with it are so important and the symbolism is so important and the ritual is so important, and which is what my 700-page book is really all about, is because it's the recovery of this lost name of God, which is called the Tetragrammaton. The, 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 the search and, and, and recovery of this thing is the entire purpose, really, of Blue Lodge Freemasonry, where... If we go back in time to the beginning of the show, we were talking about the Blue Lodge, and we said there are these first three degrees, which in order to enter the higher degrees, every mason or every person must complete. You have the three degrees of entered apprentice, fellow craft, master mason. Um, and, you know, just because of time constraints, I'm just going to bottle this. You know, the first degree is basically an introductory degree. The second degree is the, the candidate is told to basically, you know, this reflects the royal arch to seven, study the seven liberal arts to make himself a better person, yada, yada, yada. The third degree is where the candidate um, reenacts this ritual, this, this symbolic murder of a guy named Hiram Abiff. 
um, who is the architect of the first temple, the first temple of Solomon. And what what Hiram Abiff possesses is this secret name. It's called the in in this degree. It's what's called the lost word of a master mason. And Hiram Abiff has this, and and it's 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 he's using this name. It's, it's through this name that he's able to construct, you know, this temple, the 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 temple of Solomon. Well, in a nutshell. Like I said, you know, I know we're up against time here, so I'm going to do my best to bottle this. But in a nutshell, these three fellow craft want this name for themselves, and, and the temple's nearing completion, and Hiram Abiff tells them, listen, I'll give you this secret name, I'll give you this lost name of God, you know, so you can have this knowledge for yourselves, but I'm not going to do it until the temple's complete. Once the temple's complete, I'll pass it on. Well, the three, the three fellow craft, that's not good enough for them. They conspire, and they, they, they ritualistically murder Hiram Abiff, and he's dead. When, when Hiram Abiff is killed, the, the word of God, this lost name, is lost. I mean, that's what it's called. It's called the lost word of a master mason. It's never found again. When, it dies, when, when, when Hiram Abiff dies, the word dies with him in the Blue Lodge. Um, so no one has it. Um, you know, in the Blue Lodge, it's never recovered. When, when, in a nutshell, when the candidate, as Hiram Abiff is finally raised to the degree of Master Mason, you know, and this is when, when Hiram Abiff is resurrected, if you were, um, they, they whisper in his ear a substitute word. And I, I can't say what it is, but I'm sure if, if one of your listeners or you want to go on Google and just type in substitute word of a Master Mason, I, I know it'll come up. But they whisper the substitute word in. It's not the real word. It's what's called a substitute word of a Master Mason. And forever within Blue Lodge Freemasonry, you know, the word is lost. Well, if you go ahead to the high degrees and you go to this Royal Arch degree, the word, the Hiram Abiff word that he had is found. I mean, and that, the, you know, the, this is the whole crux of it. So it's like, you know, you know, what is lost is now found. And it's really sort of this, you know, the symbology of the recovery of the Tetragrammaton, the name of God, you know, and the, the, the restoration of this lost yet legitimate wisdom that I, my book presents is really the symbolic philosophy that is really defining Freemasonry, and it's really defining it in the United States, both, you know, on a symbolic, philosophical, political, you know, architectural, you know, and even almost spiritual level. And that's what the whole, the whole crux of my book is about. Well, you said it's symbolic, but do you, do you believe it might be more than symbolic? Is there real power attached to uh, this, you know, lost name for God? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, would, say, I would say it's definitely more symbolic than it is actual literal power. Um, some have suggested, and, you know, I, I don't really go into it. In, you know, I, I hint at it in my book. I don't really go into it. But but you what 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 I pr- propose is I mean it's really at the conclusion of my book, you know is is you know when we're getting into this you got to know what the ritual is and, and I'm just going to because you know time again I'm just going to go through it is what what ha- what's happening is when the temple builders when the Jewish temple builders are returning to the Holy Land from their exile in Babylon they're building the second temple which is called the second temple of Zerubbabel and it's during this construction that they find this hidden vault with the pillars and the name of God. And, and you know, you know, you know, you know, well, well we've talked about this whole show and, you know, it, it's, it's the recovery of this name and this knowledge. Well, I kind of suggest at the end of my book, is this, you know, is this just a ritual or is this some sort of real history that this thing is trying to relate? For example, 
you know, and, and I kind of hint at it, you know, it, is, you know, was at some point in time this lost underground vault, you know, really found? You know, and, you know, could this potentially be the lost treasure of the Knights Templar? You know, you know, when they went to the Holy Land, you know, is this what maybe they really found was this sort of underground treasure vault, you know, with this lost knowledge? Is this what they were, you know, were, were so desperate to protect? Um, you know, and, you know, this ties into concepts, and I suggested in my book, I suggested, I, I, I can argue it either way, you know, because, like, you, you know, you know, I mean, and you, your listeners are going to know this, you know, when you get into concepts of, like, Roslyn Chapel, which has, you know, lots of Freemasonic Knight Templar, you know, lore surrounding it, you have loads of references to the Temple of Zero Babel in it, you get into concepts where were the Knights Templars, you know, here in America first, before Columbus, you know, you get into concepts of the Kensington Runestone, you know, in Oak Island, you know, is, is Oak Island this hidden vault of Enoch? Is this maybe what the Knights Templars really concealed down there? Was was this, you know, is it real history or is it just a symbolic allegory? I mean, it's a fascinating question. Um, I wish I could give you a definitive answer on it one way or the other. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely worth researching and looking at. Well, maybe there's your next assignment, uh, Robert, yeah. the subject of your next book. The Arch of Enoch, real or merely symbolic? Yeah, um, it, it's definitely it's definitely um, something. You know, you know, people are always saying, you know, this stuff um, coming out. You know, the Knights Templar. Well, they must have discovered something over there. I definitely suggest in the book. I mean, I can't prove it, but um, you know, I suggest that maybe this is really what they discovered was this hidden underground vault with with these pillars, with the you know secret name, and maybe this is what they were concealing. Um, you know, you know, you know, we're so desperate to hide. You know, you look at it, you look at it, you just stand back from it. I mean, when the Knights Templar returned to Europe, I mean, all of a sudden you have these Gothic, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know, stone cathedrals going up, which are just perfect, you know, Pythagorean mathematical precision, you know, with flying buttresses. I mean, you know, where are these guys getting this from? All, you know, all but overnight. I mean, where is this information coming from? I mean, you know, you know, but before that, I mean, you know, just stacking one stone on top of the other, the Knights Templars return, and all of a sudden you got Chartes, you know, and these huge, you know, you know, Gothic cathedrals just popping up, you know, which are just mathematical, you know, you know, the golden, you know, ratios in there. You know, you got astral alignments. Um, you know, you got alignments to the equinoxes and the solstices. You know, where is this coming from? Um, you know, and you get into Roslyn, you know, and again, you've got numerous references in there to the Zorobabel Temple, you know, and, and, and lots of Masonic symbolism and, you know, Egyptian symbolism in the mysteries. Um, you know, is this, the, is this what the Templars really discovered? You know, maybe they came back also with a copy of the Book of Enoch. Um, that's certainly not out of the question. Maybe this is the copy that was circulating around Europe. There you go. Um, Listen, you Robert, know. this is uh, absolutely fascinating, and I'm, and I'm glad that you spent the hour with us, and uh, I thank you for that. Again, The Royal Arch of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism, Robert W. Sullivan IV. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It was great to be on, and uh, I'd love to come back. Anytime. My pleasure. There you go. I mean, the uh, the debate about uh, the Freemasons, satanic cult or misunderstood fraternity, it's not going away. Uh, but Robert gave me uh, you know, a whole new uh, sort of fresh approach and, and way of looking at, uh, at Freemasonry. All right. Uh, just a quick reminder coming up, or not a reminder, this is uh, the first you're hearing about it, a world exclusive on The Conspiracy Show next week. Of course, you're, you're familiar with uh, the, the Citizens Hearing on Disclosure, which occurred uh, oh, about a month ago, end of April, in Washington, D.C., uh, which was, of course, uh, uh, sort of 
uh, brought to me by brought to being by uh, um, Stephen Bassett, and there was uh, thirty some uh, top uh, witnesses, military people, intelligence people, uh, testifying before six former U.S. congressmen about uh, the UFOs, uh, the UFO question, and the ET presence. The uh, well, Stephen Bassett will be on the program next week. Uh, along with our good friend Victor Vigiani, who was uh, in attendance at the hearings, but also, and here's the exclusive part, there's a Canadian connection uh, to this citizen's hearing, aside from, of course, uh, the, right, or, uh, the right Honorable Paul Hellyer, who was one of the, uh, the witnesses who testified. A sort of heretofore silent partner, mystery man, is coming forward on this program next week to talk about his involvement in the uh, the uh, the uh, the citizens' hearing and how he sort of put his money where his mouth is. He's Canadian and uh, from a um, an oil family, from what I understand. So that's coming up next week. Victor Vigiani, uh, Stephen Bassett, and Mr. X, we'll call him. <laughs> Hope you'll be uh, tuning in for that one. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, and uh, you can check everything out you need to know about the Conspiracy Show at richardserrett.com. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Not a lot of time to chit-chat off the top, aside uh, from welcoming new affiliate KLVT AM 1230 in Lubbock, Texas. Welcome, KLVT. Good to have you aboard. We'll add that to our growing list of affiliates. Uh, coming uh, to Toronto, a courtesy of our friends at Conspiracy Culture, of course, Patrick White and his lovely bride, Kadena, uh, uh, is my next guest. David Hatcher Childress will join George Norrie and uh, Richard Dolan uh, for an evening of uh, Q&A and great discussions on uh, everything from Tesla to conspiracies. You know him from ancient astronauts, of course, uh, David Hatcher Childress. Uh, who's kind of a real-life Indiana Jones uh, to the many fans of his books. He's a captivating speaker, the author of, uh, or co-author of over 20 books. He's traveled the world several times over, and he's here to tell us about uh, uh, Bolivia and Peru and ancient technology and elongated uh, uh, ancient skulls and what they may have had to do with the Anunnaki and on and on and on. Uh, always a pleasure to have this uh, gentleman on the program. 
David Hatcher Childress. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hey, good. It's good to be on your show, Richard. Uh, David, it seems like whenever I'm uh, in contact with you to get you on the show, you're either going to or coming from uh, Peru and Bolivia. What is it about that, uh, that area that attracts you so? Well, I love to travel all over the world and everywhere from remote islands in in the Pacific or Indonesia or other places and, and of course, South America. I was just recently at Easter Island, too, and that's the logo of our company, the Easter Island Head. Um, There there was a flight from Peru to Easter Island for a while. They've stopped that now, but I was... I got on one of the last flights and and did that. I I love going to to South America and and Peru uh, and Bolivia especially. It's really the land of adventure. Uh, with me, um, we've got a, a magazine that's an adventure travel archaeology magazine called uh, World Explorer and and a club that goes along with that called the World Explorers Club. We're all about uh, Indiana Jones kind of adventure, lost cities in the jungle, lost pyramids, ancient treasure, sunken cities, uh, Atlantis, all that kind of stuff. And and let me tell you, Peru and and Bolivia is is just the land of adventure for that kind of stuff. I I never get tired of going down there, and and I do go down there about once a year or so, uh, usually flying to Lima and then going up to Cusco. From there, uh, going to Lake Titicaca. Lake Titicaca is the highest navigable lake uh, in the world. It's it's a it's a huge lake and and deep. Uh, approximately half of it's in Bolivia, the other half's in in Peru. And all around that lake are all kinds of weird stuff: giant, strange, uh, megalithic towers and other ruins like Pumapunku and and Tiwanaku. And then there's uh, all this strange phenomenon that happens around the lake, including uh, a lot of UFO sightings, including UFOs coming in and out of the lake. And uh, even there's stories of some weird sunken city there. And, and I write about all that in, in my new book, um, Ancient Technology in, in Peru and Bolivia. Have you ever been to Peru, Richard? No, I, I would love to go. I mean, I've, se- I've seen so many documentaries over the years on uh, on uh, you know the different civilizations that came out of there, the Incas and so forth. And I I, uh, I have a strange attraction to uh, something's pulling me there. I just haven't been able to get on a plane and get there and raise the funds necessary. But you you mentioned Cusco, and I know that one of the things that you talk about in in uh, your new book, Ancient Technology in Peru and Bolivia. Uh, and, and who knows, you know, UFOs may enter into this conversation at some point. But you talk about the Inca wall sort of in quotations because the this interesting um, uh, structure that uh, that you write about may actually predate the Incas. But but first of all, tell us what the these Inca walls are, what they look like. Right, in particularly around Cusco and the the gigantic uh, fortress that's above Cusco, uh, which is called Sacsayhuaman. Uh, other sites around there, like Ollantaytambo oh, and, and, and Machu Picchu, uh, you have what are what are known as cyclopean walls, and those are uh, granite or sometimes limestone or sandstone walls, uh, basalt too, sometimes where these huge blocks weighing five tons, ten tons, twenty tons, fifty tons, and a hundred tons are perfectly cut and fitted, often in a, a jigsaw pattern. 
they're they're locked together in these oddball patterns. Each block is is unique. The blocks themselves are perfectly fitted. You you can't even get a, a razor blade or a, a piece of paper. You know, between these blocks, they're just so perfectly fitted together. They're they're gigantically huge as well. It's amazing sight when you see it, and, and tourists are are blown away. Machu Picchu itself is this secret city on top of a mountain. It too has uh, very fine walls put together in these jigsaw patterns. Uh, also, huge blocks of granite and stuff. It's such in such a spectacular setting that it's really uh, uh, the top tourist destination in South America, and, and for good reason. But the whole, what's, I think, uh, the big problem, particularly in Peru and, and Bolivia, is, is how old they think these walls are. And uh, just like the history of, of Canada and, and the United States is, is kind of screwed up, where supposedly, uh, you know, a few Vikings got to Labrador or something, and, and then all the American Indians walked across the Bering Straits and populated North and South America, and, and suddenly Columbus showed up, 1492, and, and it's kind of like the history. And, and there's no other seafarers or people crossing the ocean, uh, even though Romans and Egyptians and Chinese and, and uh, Spanish and the Irish and all these people had actually pretty big boats and were perfectly capable of crossing the Atlantic. You know, none of them ever came here. And you have a similar thing in, in Peru where suddenly, you know, this this continent is completely isolated. Nobody ever got there. People can't just get into a boat and go somewhere. And that's kind of one of uh, history's conspiracies, in a sense, is that, is that uh, oceans are barriers, not highways. And what we're taught in, in school today, which is, in my mind, unscientific, is that, yeah, people can't just get in a boat and, and go somewhere. Uh, no, they, they have to walk everywhere to where they're going, thousands of miles of hostile tribes. So in South America particularly, it's kind of messed up where you have these giant megalithic ruins, but they're ascribed to the Incas, who were a very uh, late civilization in South America. In fact, they existed only like... 200 uh, to 300 years before the Spanish got there. So when you see these giant buildings in, in around Cusco, at Sacsayhuaman, Ayante Tambo, it's particularly impressive in my mind, they're saying, uh, the mainstream archaeologists are saying, yeah, these buildings are only 200 years old, and Machu Picchu too. Uh, well, or 200 years before the Spanish. Uh, now they're about 500 years old. But... Um, but it, yeah, it doesn't really make sense. And you see these giant buildings, and but that suddenly they were just put up in a very short time too, allegedly by the Incas. And it, and the Incas allegedly uh, didn't know the wheel. They had no knowledge of writing. Uh, their technology was primitive. They didn't have iron tools and things like that. Uh, certainly, they didn't have power saws. Uh, uh, giant cranes to, to lift 100-ton blocks of granite and things like that. And yet these are all the things that you find there in South America, and it's baffling. And, it, I mean, it really doesn't make sense. And 
trying to make sense of it all is is what I do in in my law cities and ancient technology books. It, it, when you look at the, for example, the stairs uh, leading up that were also precisely carved out of these solid pieces of granite, I guess, uh, is when you look at the weathering on the stairs. Uh, which obviously took place after the cutting took place. I mean, the weathering alone would would tend to, to show you that these things are are probably on the order of a thousand years rather than you know five or six hundred years old. Well, right, and and those stairs like that you're talking about uh, in various places, and, and say at Tiwanaku, where we can really see them. Yeah, they are heavily weathered, and and yeah, a lot of people for a long time must have been walking up and down on these stairs, and that's one of the other enigmas, really, too, is that. You have sites, uh, mainly in Bolivia, which are similar and, and in some ways identical to these same Inca, supposed Inca ruins in Peru, but they know that they're not built by the Incas and that they are pre-Inca. And, but just exactly how old they are is the big question. And, and basically in my book, I'm saying that, that those ruins at, at say, Tiwanaku, Pumapunku, they're from around 3000 BC, really, and there's even um, cuneiform Sumerian writing uh, that's been found there, which which is another thing. That's that's a giant monkey wrench into the the history there. In fact, yeah, that that just can't be there. In fact, um, today there's it's actually in the the gold museum in in La Paz. It's called the Fuente Magnable, and it has two forms of Sumerian writing on it. One is cuneiform, and the other is uh, uh, Sumerian hieroglyphics. The, the Sumerians had, had several writing forms. And it's, it's today in the museum, you know, the, basically the National Museum in La Paz. But it can't be there. And mainstream archaeologists, uh, particularly the United States, I mean, they would say, you know, this, this just can't be there. This, this bowl can't exist. There can't have been Sumerians in... South America 5,000 years ago. This that's, is, this is, you know, that's not, that's not history. That's not our history. Yet it's in that museum. And in fact, you know, Bolivia's kind of a renegade nation of a sort, and I, which I think is a good thing. And um, I mean, they want to do their own thing. They, they don't bow to pressure that much from the United States. But I can honestly tell you that if that bowl, that Sumerian bowl, had probably been found in Peru, it wouldn't be on display in a museum. I mean, they would cover it up. It's it's People are controversial. Yeah, it's too controversial, and it and it totally flips the mainstream history on its head. I mean, it it's it's a giant, you know, nuclear bomb to all their theories. I mean, there just can't have been that. And what it's really indicating is that ancient Sumerians probably, at, you know, at some point, came to South America, came to Lake Titicaca and Cusco, built all this stuff. And I mean, some of it was maybe already there. You. There's lots of theories about Atlantis and whatnot in, in South America, and, and those are pretty good theories, in effect. Megalithic building, that how far it goes back to, you know, even 10,000 years. But this is the kind of history that's, that's yeah, creates a big cover-up. All they can do right now is ignore it, which they do. But it really shows you how uh, there are cover-ups in history, and people are constantly asking me about... Smithsonian Institution cover-ups uh, that, you know, why Why would, say, universities or Smithsonian or other people cover up certain archaeological finds? And, and I think that's a good question. But there really, it really does go on, and, and we can go into this, why they would do it. 
Well, let's, let's just take a, let me just jump in here. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. And I do want to pick up on that Sumerian uh, uh, cuneiform uh, found in Bol- Bolivia. I mean, for, for, for those maybe not familiar, this was a, a civilization that, that uh, arose suddenly and unexpectedly unexpectedly uh, in Mesopotamia, uh, you know, which is modern day Iraq. So, you know, look at the look at the globe. How did they get from uh, Iraq uh, to uh, Bolivia uh, thousands and thousands of years ago? Back with more of my conversation with David. David Hatcher Childress right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM The Wellness Belt. Can it really do all they claim it can do? Does it really work? After seven years, the Wellness Belt still maintains a 93% success rate. Thousands of clients have enjoyed vastly improved lifestyles and better physical conditioning, like Doreen. I've lost several inches. I've got nothing but good things to say about it. It helps me to walk taller and straighter. And Desmond. It's been comforting to have the belt. And Marianne. I just find that when I'm wearing it, I feel great. Others have simply seized back their lives from debilitating back pain, like Moira. It works. I got up and I started walking around. And Mike. Absolutely shocked. After four minutes of wearing the wellness belt, I felt my right foot for the first time in 20 years. Absolutely beyond words. The wellness belt comes with a 90-day money-back satisfactory guarantee, so you have nothing to lose but unwanted body fat and annoying aches and pains. For more information, call 1-800-978-2358 or visit wellnessbelts.com today. I missed my sister's wedding. Mary, 32. It was sunny, beautiful. Mary was forced to make a choice. Either her wedding or finding the perfect bungalow in Leaside. Mary is addicted to real estate, but she found help at Zucasa.com. Search all home listings, find a directory of top agents, and get a cash rebate at closing, all in one place. Her next wedding? I am so there. If you're obsessed with real estate, you need Zucasa.com. Zucasa is a licensed real estate brokerage. <laughs> Kathy's visits with her mom used to be about groceries, laundry, and cleaning. Now that mom is living in a Chartwell retirement residence, visits are about catching up with each other. Chartwell retirement residences provide the safety and security a parent needs with the services and activities they want. That way, your time together can be spent on more important things. <laughs> if the time is right, visit Chartwell.com today. You'll find a Chartwell residence in your neighborhood. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. 
David Hatcher Childress is with us. His new books uh, are Ancient Technology in Peru and Bolivia, which we're discussing now, and time permitting, we'll uh, we'll touch upon uh, his other new one, The Enigma of Cranial Deformation. Uh, Okay, so the Sumerians suddenly arrive in Bolivia, of all places, uh, from, uh, you know, Mesopotamia or modern-day Iraq. Uh, So... What would they have been looking for? Why do you think? Do you, I mean, do you speculate? Can you speculate on why they would have come to Bolivia? Yeah, sure. And I and I do in my book. I I pretty much spell it out and and decipher what is going on there as as, as best that I could figure out. And in fact, one of the other things that you see around Lake Titicaca and 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 the Cusco area, which is a little bit north of of Lake Titicaca, but but not very far. You have these weird towers, and they're megalithic too, with cyclopean uh, construction with granite blocks and things like that. They often have uh, open to- open uh, tops. Uh, they're 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 kind of strange in the sense that they often kind of taper in or or out, they're, rather than being perfectly straight up and down. At at Cusco, there were also some weird towers like this. They were just dis- destroyed by the Spanish. But around Lake Titicaca, and, and they're more on the west side of the lake, and, and actually in Peru, uh, and but Tiwanaku's along the south side of the lake, and, and it's in Bolivia. But these weird towers are, are on top of these strange uh, mesas, and they're flat-topped mesas, um, uh, similar to like mesas that would be in in Arizona or New Mexico or Utah or something. And, and, uh, but as you climb up to these mesas, uh, it's, there are these oddball towers, and and they're very well made, uh, just like the the giant walls and stuff in Cusco or at Tiwanaku, and they can't figure out what they're doing there, and they're in isolated weird places. I mean, they're not near some towns and stuff, and it's it's kind of desolate there, although there are forests, you know, fairly nearby. What mainstream archaeologists have said is that, well, they're barrier, burial towers, and uh, the local people there just, I mean, they, they, they themselves live in these kind of crummy mud hut houses, but they decided to build these really excellent, finely cut granite towers and put them, you know, uh, on top of these mesas, you know, so that they could you know, put some dead bodies in there for a while, and, and then they would probably be like naturally mummified or something. And it, it does seem that the local people did use these towers to inter the dead from time to time, but it's, it doesn't seem that that's what the, the original purpose of these towers were. And so that became a mystery. And it was, and it was clear that the same people who are building these towers are the people who, who really built Cusco, who, who built Sacsayhuaman, and Machu Picchu, all these things. And it's, and it's earlier than the Incas. And that's one of the things with megalithic construction in general. Today, oftentimes when we build things, uh, you know, even well-built buildings, they're not made to last for thousands of years. They're they're made to last for 100 or 200 years, and, and you know, that's a pretty good building. Uh, if you go to Washington, D.C. or Ottawa or something and look at a really nice Capitol building or something, and it, it may be well-constructed and actually made to last for a while. But we have really with our own construction almost like a, a planned obsolescence that's there. And we fully expect to just tear down these buildings at some point and, and rebuild them. But when you're building with these megalithic structures, like in South America or it can be in Egypt, uh, all over the world, they're built to last for thousands of years, and they have. Uh, they're 
giant blocks of stone perfectly fit together. And you have to ask yourself this, too, and I, I go into all this in the book. Why are people even trying to build like that? I mean, supposedly they're simple people without, you know, power tools, without big cranes or engineering skills and, 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 and machines like we have today, yet we wouldn't even try and build like that. But they're, they're trying to do something that seems so incredibly difficult. I mean, it, it's like they're just trying to do things in the most difficult way possible, including building with 100-ton blocks of granite that they not only have to quarry, move 10 or 20 miles, but then they have to stack them up, uh, perfectly fit them together. It all seems so incredibly tedious. But, you know, I'm maintaining in the book that actually it's done with fairly high technology. They actually have power tools and saws, uh, and that, which sounds pretty incredible, but this gets into the whole Vimanas and, and ancient technology, even that the ancients had electricity. Well, here's uh, something that I found uh, fascinating, and, and uh, I know that in, I think in the museum in Cusco, they have those, uh, a portion of those those blocks, and there are these holes born, bored, rather, bored into this solid granite, uh, and when you shine a flashlight through, it's almost as if the hole has is, is been rifled. It's that sort of smooth and precise. We're not talking about, you know, just a, a crude chisel. Uh, how did those holes... Exactly. No, that's right. That's a good point. Yeah, so you have, like, these uh, perfectly round holes that are drilled through, say, basalt, which is extremely hard rock. It uh, looks like it's even been melted. I mean, we're, we're looking at power tools. What's also on these blocks, particularly at Tiwanaku and Pumapunku, but also seen at Ayante Tombo and at the Sun Temple in, in Cusco, the, the Cori Concha, that's a mysterious building itself, also very expertly, perfectly made. It was a round building. Uh, it, held, it held this great treasure. There's a weird tunnel system that goes beneath uh, Cusco and that temple and, and is well known uh, to Cuscanians. So the, the Peruvian government actually blocked it off at one point. But they have these keystone cuts. In other words, these, these cuts that are made into the blocks and they're uh, a double T, and or they're like an hourglass shape. And one side of the T, or the hourglass, uh, that can be circular clamps and things too, is on one giant block. And we're talking, again, 20-ton, 100-ton blocks, uh, which you wouldn't think are going anywhere. But then they're fitted together with these, these clamps, and then molten metals are poured into those those the the clamps themselves the, the key cuts as they're called, and then the metal clamp becomes uh, as it hardens in like a double T shaped or an hourglass shape, and it's on it's on both of the blocks and it's there to hold these blocks together. Well, that's a really unusual way of fitting uh, giant blocks together, but we find it all over the world. We find it in Egyptian temples. Uh, we find it uh, in, in Turkey, we find it in Greece, we even find it in Borobudur in Indonesia and at Angkor Wat in Cambodia, also the megalithic cities of the Kham people in Vietnam. You have these exact same kind of keystone cuts. And then these metals, there has to be some bronze or some kind of alloy metal is poured into it. So the whole idea even that Different people from all over the world, I mean, on, on, in Asia and in Africa and in South America, that they're building like this with these kind of special keystone cuts and then the metal clamps poured into it, that these people would independently 
developed such an unusual form of, of fitting unusual blo- these giant blocks together, you know, is incredible. But again, that's what the mainstream archaeologists have to say. They, they're saying, oh, yeah, you know, this is just a temple site. Yeah, the people wanted to drag these giant blocks. Well, they made these keystone cuts. And yes, they had to pour this liquid metal in. But that's part of the, the thing. And now we'll get back to these towers, is that what you've got going here, and this is what mainstream archaeologists don't get, is that, yeah, you have basically somewhere, you've got to have these mines and metallurgical plants. So, so not just are you going to have gold mines and tin mines and copper mines and, uh, and, and whatnot, but you then have to process the ore, you have to wash it, you have to have kilns that are going to uh, fire up the, the ore, what's going to, you know, then you're going to have the liquid metals come out, whether it's gold, silver, copper, tin, you're going to, to make bronze and other harder metals, you have to mix them and, and make alloys. And so, you know, what we're seeing there, what, 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 what is obviously going on is that somewhere there had to have been some very sophisticated uh, foundry, uh, you know, a metallurgical plant that is, that's got waters washing ores. You would have to have furnaces, uh, you know, and then they have the liquid metals that they're pouring into these giant blocks. And then at Tiwanaku and Pumapunku itself, I mean, there were gigantic buildings there and, and huge pyramids. And these pyramids even had artificial lakes on top of them. Uh, it was, you know, it's a... It's that's, a engineer- lot of, that's a lot of effort to go to 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 uh, to, to bury somebody. I, I don't buy that for a moment. <laughs> well, right. I mean, that's the thing, and and they're they're missing that point too. They're they're looking at Tiwanaku and Pumapunku and and even these towers and stuff. They're they're they just see them as these kind of oddball, you know, ceremonial sites and these and they're basically saying, yeah, these primitive people wanted a place to meet or something and and do their sun ceremonies or or sacrifice some some yamas and alpacas or something. And so they build all these giant things, but but yeah, what but obviously, you know, it's taking amazing engineering uh, and construction abilities to do this. They had to plan this whole thing out. They're, they're in fact, diverting entire rivers to go into special canals, and then they're pumping the water up to these artificial lakes so, uh, so that they can then bring it down and wash ores. So, in other words, what these towers are, they're part of the metallurgical plants, too, I, I, is what I decided. And they were probably filled with charcoal. They're basically giant kilns. You have to make charcoal for first, first of all, and and that can be also done in a kiln and a and a tower. And then once you have the charcoal, then you can make the foundries and the furnaces that are going to melt the ores. And in fact, what is at the famous Gate of the Sun at Tiwanaku is this sun god supposedly Viracocha, and he's, he's right there on the main part of this gate, which was this monolithic doorway that's it's carved out of one giant piece of granite, and they had a bunch of these there. But he's there. He's got a, he's got a feathered headdress, just like we picture the American Indian chiefs having his big feathered headdress and stuff. But tears are coming down his, his cheeks, and it's very obvious. And they, you can see that he is crying. And, and sometimes they call this the tears of the sun. Well, in the way I have managed to code it in my book, it really is that these are, this is, this is gold. It's liquid metals. Uh, it's, it's, and the tears of the sun is literally drops of gold or, 
drops of liquid copper and and other metals, which which they would mix together to create bronze and and other alloys. That's that's fascinating. Uh, you know, it, it's like they had their own little Bethlehem steel plant down there in uh, on atop of Bolivia thousands of years ago. Uh, anyway, David Hatcher Childress is with us. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and continue to discuss ancient technology in Peru and Bolivia right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM seven forty. The Wellness Belt. Can it really do all they claim it can do? Does it really work? After seven years, the Wellness Belt still maintains a 93% success rate. Thousands of clients have enjoyed vastly improved lifestyles and better physical conditioning, like Doreen. I've lost several inches. I've got nothing but good things to say about it. It helps me to walk taller and straighter. And Desmond. It's been comforting to have the belt. And Marianne. I just find that when I'm wearing it, I feel great. Others have simply seized back their lives from debilitating back pain, like Moira. It works. I got up and I started walking around. And Mike. Absolutely shocked. After four minutes of wearing the wellness belt, I felt my right foot for the first time in 20 years. Absolutely beyond words. The wellness belt comes with a 90-day money-back satisfactory guarantee, so you have nothing to lose but unwanted body fat and annoying aches and pains. For more information, call 1-800-978-2358 or visit wellnessbelts.com today. For the first time ever, Chevrolet is offering 0% financing for 84 months on every vehicle in the 2013 lineup. It's the big 0% sale, and the savings are huge. Looking for a new 2013 Silverado Heavy Duty? 0% for 84 months. Traverse, Trax, Volt, Corvette? Get 0% financing for 84 months on every 2013 Chevrolet. But this big sale is for a short time only. Offers available June 12th to 22nd. OAC, see your Chevrolet dealer, or visit OntarioChevroletDealers.com for details. <laughs> Kathy's visits with her mom used to be about groceries, laundry, and cleaning. Now that mom is living in a Chartwell retirement residence, visits are about catching up with each other. Chartwell retirement residences provide the safety and security a parent needs with the services and activities they want. That way, your time together can be spent on more important things. <laughs> if the time is right, visit Chartwell.com today. You'll find a Chartwell residence in your neighborhood. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. 
ancient technology in Peru and Bolivia. David Hatcher Childers is with us. He is coming to uh, Toronto for my Toronto listeners, the end of June, June 29th. And uh, if you go to conspiracyculture.com, my good friend Patrick White, of course, of Conspiracy Culture, is uh, sort of organizing uh, this, and all the details are there. Conspiracyculture.com. You can get tickets. Go on out, and uh, uh, you can ask David uh, Hatcher Childers about his world travelers, uh, world travels, of course, uh, the real-life Indiana Jones right here with us. Uh, so this uh, this smelting operation or whatever you want to call it. I, the other thing I was I found interesting when you look at the those those holes again and in in, that were bored with such precision, uh, and you look at those all lined up in these strange configurations. It almost looks like I don't know they were running cables or something through there. What do you think those? What what, what were those for? Well, you know, that, I mean that's a good point, and uh, there's particularly at the Sun Temple. Uh, the Cori Concha in, in Cusco, which is such a strange, strange building, and uh, was totally the center of life in the, in the Inca Empire. And, it was, and I maintain that that building was already there. I mean, these buildings are virtually indestructible. Although this, the Spanish would try to turn like like that, they turned it into a church and a monastery, and then they built walls uh, around it. And then later, and it was in uh, 1949, that they had a big earthquake there, and, and some of the Spanish walls fell down, and they could see more of the Spanish, the earlier pre-Spanish walls, which they call Inca, but are actually probably pre-Inca. But some of those walls are just so bizarre, and they have all these drill holes in them. They're very, very carefully articulated, where you have these different door jams and things, and you have, um, yeah, these drilled holes and, and grooves. And in fact, it looks like, um, particularly this one niche uh, there at the Sun Temple, it looks like some kind of machine or something was it fit into this special kind of niche. It has holes for cables and things to go through it. Um, just ex- and in fact, I've had electrical engineers that I've been with telling me that yeah, this this is looks exactly like uh, you know a, a sort of a. Uh, a case for some kind of machine or electrical device that would have had all kinds of cables running into it. And of course, they're all gone. And that's part of the thing with the, the Tiwanaku and, and all the stuff that you see, particularly in South America and all over the world, is that the metals are gone. Any, any piece of metal or cable, even these uh, keystone clamps, the, the metals that are poured in, they're all basically gone, and and it's just, it's what people have, you know, often said, and it's a good criterion. And you know, I, I make a case in my books that ancient civilizations were were more advanced, uh, that they had electricity, they they had even special sciences where they could, I, I believe, levitate these giant blocks. They had uh, airships, vimanas. Much like today. I mean, uh, I don't think that the ancient world had such a consumer society like we have today with all kinds of different brands to buy and um, kind of, you know, all the different choices we have. But they had... They had electricity. Um, they had power saws. They even had some kind of flight. These Vamanas, my, my new book that I'm working on now, and and should be out later this summer, is a book about Vimanas. And in fact, it's just called Vimana. And it's all about these ancient airships and uh, super technology that, that was in ancient India and the ancient Indian epics like the Ramayana and right, right. 
and the Mahabharata. And when you read those books, they read like the wildest science fiction. People are flying around in their Vamana airships. They have horrific weapons. They're blasting each other. They're going to other continents and things like that. I mean, it's like some uh, Buck Rogers or, or Flash Gordon movie or something. Well, if you have these huge, like, dirigibles, uh, like these huge zeppelins, I mean, yeah, that would certainly solve a lot of the mystery as to how the Sumerians end up, uh, you know, it's one thing just to cross the ocean, but then when you arrive in South America and you've got to get, you know, up to the top, up to Lake Titicaca and so forth, that's another huge obstacle. So if they did, in fact, uh, move around using the, uh, in zeppelins or dirigibles, you know, problem solved. Uh, I, I want to talk about uh, Sumeria, though, f for a moment, because uh, for many of us, Sumeria came into our uh, sort of a consciousness uh, via people like Zachariah Sitchin and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, um, translating these, these Sumerian cuneiforms and their creation legends about meeting up with the Anunnaki. Uh, and we're just about to come to a time, a time out here, but when we come back, uh, maybe we can then now sort of move into uh, the uh, the Anunnaki, the Sumerians, and uh, I know the, the subject of one of your other books, and that is uh, your new books, The Enigma of Cranial Deformation and how all this sort of fits together. Are you good for that? Yeah. All right. David Hatcher Childress is with us. The, again, his new books, Ancient Technology in Peru and Bolivia and The Enigma of Cranial Deformation. More of our conversation right here on The Conspiracy Show right after this. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Goldhawk on Zoomer Radio. I'm 72 years old. And I remember to this day the horrible, horrible experiences I had with a dentist when I was a kid. When I was about 10, 12, 11 years old. It yeah. was just awful. Yeah. And I have a dentist, which I see. And I have never, ever experienced any pain with him. Yeah. I've had root canals, all kinds of work, and I've never experienced any pain. And let me tell you, I live in Sherburne and Dundas area, yeah. and there are at least 12 to 14 dentists within a 10-minute walk in my place, and I won't go see them. I'll go, I'll, I'll go on the TTC for 40 minutes to see my trusted dentist, and it's so important that you have somebody you can trust like that. We're on a first-name basis, and it's, it's wonderful. And I have, I'm 72 years old, and I have all my teeth, and they're beautiful. Gold Hawk fights back for you. 11 to 1. Get involved daily on Zoomer Radio. Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. 
We're back with David Hatcher Childress, Ancient Technology in Peru and Bolivia and the Enigma of Cranial Deformation. So let's assume uh, you are correct uh, and that it was the Sumerians uh, who built these structures, these uh, megalithic uh, structures with such precision that has been attributed by sort of mainstream ortho, ortho, uh, archaeology to the Incas. It was the Sumerians who, who built those. Uh, the the uh, the connection between the Sumerians and the Anunnaki, for those not familiar with that story, can you just give us a bit of that creation legend very quickly as a setup? Well, right. Um, we get the term Anunnaki uh, from the Sumerians, and if it's possibly, it seems that that's uh, uh, similar to what's in the biblical Old Testament, the, the Nephilim. And there were supposedly these giants, they have these elongated heads. Uh, there are statues that come out of Samaria that show these guys. They have what they call coffee bean eyes, kind of a, kind of a weird eyes that are, that are different than what we're normally used to seeing in statues, say like Egyptian statues or something. Um, and they have these elongated weird heads. Um, according to uh, the Sumerian uh, mythology and stuff, they were these gods who brought civilization and uh, different sciences, including metallurgy and um, you know medical sciences and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, allegedly, they they could fly through the air, had airships. Uh, they also had boats. And in fact, you know, I mean, that's, that's one of the things too. Uh, Easter Island would fit into this too, as well. You know, just trying to wrap your head around what it's like in the ancient world, and and, and particularly them having, in a sense, advanced technologies like like even airships and stuff like that. But look at us today. I mean, we have we've got rockets, we've got satellites, we've got all kinds of different, you know, aircraft of of all kinds of different sort. But yet. Still, most of our cargo and traffic is done by sea and by boat. Um, you know, we we don't airlift everything everywhere, and uh, and most most cargo really does move up and down rivers and and across oceans and on boats. And where we still use boats. So even if the Sumerians had airships, uh, which I maintain they did. Um, you know, they would still have boats, too, uh, and they would have had huge navies, and, and that's one of the things. I mean, ancient people had that, uh, just like today, and in fact, it's often was said right up to historical times today is that, well, the country with the biggest navy rules the world, and uh, that was, you know, the British, uh, that was one of their songs, how, you know, Britannia ruled the waves, simply because they had the biggest navy, but they were wasn't always like that. There was times when Holland had the world's largest navy. There were times when Spain had the world's largest navy. Today, it's the United States, supposedly, and although it'll be China soon with the world's largest navy. So, but yeah, so you have the boats, and and you and you need you need landing areas, you need landing spots, you need ports, you need island sort of uh, you know places like Easter Island where where people can stop and and get water or something like that. Um, so you're going to have all that. And if the Sumerians were doing all this, and, and I maintain they did, yeah, they're they're literally going all over the world. And and that's part of the thing today is that. Uh, what you were saying, um, how Sumeria is basically the other side of the earth from uh, Bolivia and Lake Titicaca. I mean, they're about as far away as they can get. And yet, it would seem that that was one of their colonies. And, and what they were looking for, just as the Spanish were when they got to South America, they wanted treasure, they wanted metals, they wanted mines. And, and by the way, 
uh, what fueled uh, the Spanish, um, you know, empire for for uh, several centuries was this giant mountain of silver in in uh, Bolivia known as Potosi, and it's, it's literally a mountain of silver, and it became at the time in colonial times it became Bolivia's most important town. Uh, it's not today, but um, but it was all because there was just so much mineral and metal wealth that was there. And it's right near, I mean, it's a little bit south of, of Lake Titicaca. So they were using Lake Titicaca also for, for ships. By the way, Sumerian is an unusual language. It's supposedly the only language that has no... Um, has has no uh, sort of familiar other languages. It's it's unique. There are no other languages like Sumerian. Most other languages are somehow related to you know Indo-European or this language or that language. But Sumerian is is unusual that way. There's, there's so much of the Sumerian culture that I mean, it, here's a, a civilization that just sprang up while the you know everyone else was just climbing out of the trees or living in mud huts. Sumeria had uh, you know, domesticated uh, uh, livestock and 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 developed sophisticated agriculture. They had libraries and 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 so forth, which has led some to this is you know surmise that they had, as according to their sort of creation legend. Uh, communication with this extraterrestrial race, these Anunnaki. Do you do you subscribe to to, to that theory? Well, I, I'm certainly open to it, and uh, I mean, there's there's something to that. Uh, they, but now, if these people have electricity, if they have complicated machines, uh, if if they've got airships, they've got beam weapons, they've got plasma cutters. Yeah, they've got high-energy devices that melt things. They've got levitation devices that, that somehow make some hundred-ton block of granite weightless so they can, you know, move it into place. I mean, it's it, this is apparently what's going on. I mean, the more you look at it and, and research it, as I have, the more convinced I am that this is this is what it was in the ancient world. And even, yeah, that people are coming from other planets, uh, what that's all about. You have the interesting idea, too, um, and I knew Zachariah Sitchin and, and talked to him a number of times, read all his books, and I, I, I liked him. I, I did not agree with everything he said. But what's interesting, too, and, and this was not what he was interested in, but it's, it's more the direction that, that my research took me, is that our solar system, apparently, there's, there's a thing that was discovered in the mid-1800s by a, a German mathematician named Bode, and he... He had this thing called Bode's Law, and Bode's Law was a mathematical logarithm that goes out from the sun. And what he was, what he kind of came up with was that as you move out from the sun it, out into the solar system, there, that according to his law, there should be a planet at certain spots along as you go out. And as you go farther away from the sun, they would actually get, you know, there would be farther space between the planets and all that. And what's interesting is that Bode's law very much fit our solar system, except for one big uh, difference. And that is that between Mars and Jupiter, there should be a planet. That's what Bode's law said. And, but instead of there being a planet between Mars and Jupiter, there's the asteroid belt. Right. The remnants of a planet, perhaps. That's right. So now you have basically the, the evidence for this story that there was another planet in our solar system, but it blew up. 
and either the people blew up their own planet, and, uh, and maybe we're those guys. Uh, but yeah, there was a time when then our solar system perhaps had three um, planets that were inhabitable as uh, in the way we would think inhabited bull would be like like the Earth and Mars and this other planet. Sure, and but, and our, our mutual friend uh, 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 Joseph Farrell, who writes, of course, uh, for uh, Adventures Unlimited, is published by Adventures Unlimited. He's written extensively about that in Cosmic Wars. People can check that book out. That's right, those this, Cosmic Wars. And now all these guys do, just so we can get to the the enigma of cranial deformation, these people with these elongated craniums, and they look like extraterrestrials, but we know that some people just made, you know, little kids this way by, you know, binding the head and stuff. But people were doing this all over the world, and they were doing this in Sumeria, and, and certainly the Anunnaki looked like this. But they've found many, many skulls in, in South America, also in Egypt, also the, in Kurdistan. Uh, even the Chinook Indians in, near Seattle and Vancouver, they did this too. So you have these weird cone heads with these strange elongated heads, and, but they're all over the world too. So, I mean, that's, that's another weird thing. You know, why are people in all these, you know, separate, far-flung places doing this oddball thing? And the mainstream archaeologists are going to say, oh, they all just invented it themselves, separately, you know, without any contact. Just doing this weird thing. And how I does guess, that make sense? Well, I guess they were either emulating the uh, the Anunnaki, who they would have sort of worshipped like gods, I suppose, or maybe some of these skulls that you've seen in the museum in Cusco, they're all on display there, uh, these elongated skulls. Uh, I don't know, perhaps they're, they're hybrids, or the Anunnaki themselves. Well, sure. So you have either people who just naturally look like this with these elongated heads, and they're real, uh, you know, um, although some of the mediums are taking these off display, in fact, because they're so unusual. Uh, but in Peru, particularly, you can see them. And, uh, but yeah, so either they're doing that, I mean, they, and they look normally this way, or because they were these gods and the elite, that other people wanted to look like them, so they would do this like head binding that would create an elongated head and and whatever. And some of these guys too, they would double their cranium capacity, and in theory, yeah, their brains would be larger than a normal human's as well. Just to add, sort of more to further muddy the water, I suppose it was a book uh, written in the middle of the 19th century. You're probably familiar with it. I can't remember the author. It's called Peruvian Antiquities, and there's a sketch in that book that shows a human fetus with a huge elongated skull, which would again is suggesting that some of them may have been born that way. That's right, yeah, so then that's the interesting thing. Uh, in our book uh, with Brian Forster, the Enigma of Cranial Deformation, we have some color photos of a very unusual head, a skull, which has a different fusing of the plates, and it's not a normal, um, you know, uh, you have different plates in your head, and, and when you're a baby, they don't, they haven't fused yet, but as, as you become more, as you grow up, they, they do fuse together. But you have these, you have certain plates in your head, but these elongated skulls don't have that same plate pattern that, that normal humans would have. So they may well be some different species of person or, or even possibly extraterrestrials. 
Well, listen, David, uh, we could go on for hours and would love to, and uh, we'll, perhaps we can pick it up at another point uh, down the road and, and talk further about the uh, these uh, cranial deformations. I appreciate your time tonight. And again, uh, we look forward to two new books, Ancient Technology in Peru and Bolivia and The Enigma of Cranial Deformation. And we'll look forward to seeing you here in Toronto, June 29th. And uh, folks can get tickets at conspiracyculture.com. Thank you, David. Thank you, Richard. All the best. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. David Hatcher Childers, always full value. Uh, difficult guy to get on the show because, as I say, he's always traveling uh, uh, around the globe. Uh, and if you get a chance to see him in person, please do so. Again, coming to Toronto, June the 29th, as part of Conspir- uh, Conspiracy Culture's presentation, uh, George Norrie, David Hatcher Childers, Richard Dolan, uh, Alex Jones. Uh, so log on to conspiracyculture.com. And you can order your tickets through there. I might even see you there as well. All right. Uh, just a few moments left in the program. A couple of things I want to share with you. First of all, here's a story I posted uh, at richardserrett.com. This is fascinating. The discovery of preserved mammoth blood could soon make it possible to clone a live specimen. You heard me correctly. Scientists are attempting to bring back the woolly mammoth from extinction, and they now have uh, much to celebrate, it would seem, the remarkably well-preserved remains of an adult mammoth discovered in Siberia have been found to contain actual blood and muscle tissue. Researchers excavating the body came across the the, uh, blood in ice cavities below the animal where it appears to have been maintained in a liquid state despite the freezing temperatures. Samples of the blood and tissue have now been collected and sent for analysis in a laboratory. Uh, quote, when we broke the ice beneath her stomach, the blood flowed out from there. It was very dark, said expedition leader Semyon Grigoriev. This is the most astonishing case in my entire life. How was it possible for it to remain in liquid form? And the muscle tissue is also red, the color of fresh meat. So you're, there you go. The, the Jurassic Park dream of cloning long dead animals from their genetic remains may have taken a giant step closer to reality. Let's hope they don't get the same idea with a velociraptor. That's the last thing we need, one of those things uh, loose on the streets of Toronto or New York or what have you. Uh, Last week on the program, I played a clip that someone sent me uh, from uh, Buzz Aldrin, the second man to walk on the moon. This was an interview he gave uh, back in 2009 after he released a book entitled The Magnificent Desolation. And he says a couple of things here that have some people wondering whether he's sort of admitting, trying to admit that the Apollo 11 moon mission was a hoax. Have a listen. He writes about his experience in an autobiography called Magnificent Desolation. All three of us decided not to participate in uh, Apollo uh, 11. Why would we go there? You just get overawed, you set up a a series of expectations, and (laughs) you're, you're bound to get disappointed one way or the other. I thrived on addictive substances, uh, alcoholism, and clearly that began to predominate in my unstructured life. It sounds like it may have been more difficult just to plan one human life than it was to plan that mission to the moon, at least for you. Well, yeah, it, it certainly was. What a bodacious challenge confronting people on Earth. We were obsessed with doing the best that we possibly could so that we wouldn't trip over the wire that goes out to the TV camera that's recording all that we're doing. 
That's Buzz Aldrin, whose new book is called Magnificent Desolation. That last part in particular, we were, you know, trying desperately not to trip over the wire leading to the television camera. Doesn't that sound like he's admitting, as many <laughs> conspiracy theorists have, have uh, presumed, that uh, the Apollo 11 lunar landing, was, uh, lunar landing was a hoax and it was shot on some soundstage, uh, a la Capricorn 1, with O.J. Simpson and Hal Holbrook. Now, I'm playing this again because uh, I want to get your feedback on this. And I'd love to hear either on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, or through email, and you can email me through the website, richardserrett.com, richard at richardserrett.com. Love to get your feedback on this. Let me know what you think. You've heard the clip from Buzz Aldrin, and there are a couple of instances in that clip in which he appears to be, or what it sounds like he's saying is, the lunar landing was a hoax. But you tell me. Maybe I'm reading more into that. And maybe what I'll do also is I'll post that. Uh, I'll figure out a way. I'll post that uh, clip on uh, on Twitter. I'll send that out as a Twitter. And uh, then you can listen to it and respond. Say hello at uh, on Twitter at Richard Serrett or email me through the website www.richardserrett. That's S-Y-R-E-T-T dot com. Back next week with Stephen Bassett, Victor Vigiani, and the mystery man who was sort of funding helping to fund, in part, the citizens' hearing on disclosure. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.